Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Milind Hegde from the Department of Mathematics. Welcome to the show, Milind. Thanks, Brian. So I guess to get started, um, how did you get involved? How did you end up deciding to go into math? Why are you a mathematician today? Right. Um, I think... When I was a kid, it was definitely more of a, just a science thing, uh, generally. Um, so my, I wanted to be a researcher maybe quite early, like seventh or eighth grade or something. Uh, mainly because I just, I, I just read these popular science books, which just seemed exciting. Um, okay. I didn't know math was a thing at that point. So I, I read a few popular math books as well, but not, not really. Um, it was only in high school, I think, that I started learning about more, more advanced math, some calculus and stuff. I started seeing some more of the depth in the subject. And... I think that excited me on some level on seeing that there's more happening here that I could actually kind of do myself on some level. You mean, so like just in high school calculus that? Not just calculus, but yeah, just generally, you know, up until high school math is in some sense quite boring. You, you, you just keep doing these kind of calculations, which are, you don't know why it's important. And, you know, there's no real patterns there. But after a point that you, you come to the part of the subject where you can, see some patterns. Maybe it, oftentimes in school, they don't, they don't tell you the patterns, but you can kind of see some patterns. Um, and so for, for me, kind of seeing the glimpses of these patterns was very exciting. And then realizing that there's a lot more richness in the thing where you can find. So I'm using these word patterns just to just describe general mathematical kind of properties or structures or anything, something like that. Um, and so seeing that there's a lot more of this richness there, which you can kind of explore yourself was very appealing at that time. And then, so did you go to undergrad and focused on math right from the beginning? So uh, not, well, no. So I, I picked my major about two years in, but I, I went to a school where basically you pick from a science major. So it was either physics, chemistry, biology, math, or uh, maybe environmental science, I think. And so I found myself to be really bad at the other lab work. And so I, I must prefer theory for sure. <laughs> you mean you tried to like go into the lab like pipette and it was just like not happening yeah. for you? Yeah, I... I <laughs> It's not that I was disorganized, it's just that I didn't like, I, I felt like I had to rely on certain machines to do jobs correctly. And if the machine failed, I, I just didn't know what to do. While in math, you're kind of on your own. And so if you if something fails, it's, it's on you. So in one sense, that's bad. Uh, but in another sense, you're not beholden to something else working for you to be able to do something. But that's what you like about math. Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay, at, at, at the research level, you rely, you rely on some theorems, which you don't know how they're proved, but it can't break, you know? It can't be that you're trying to do something and then the machine fails, and then you have to wait for somebody else to come and fix it, because you don't know what's really wrong with it. That was my experience as an undergrad uh, in, in these labs. So, like, how is it to be a mathematic researcher? You have, like, a particular area of math. Yeah, so, for example, I work in, in probability theory. Um, just 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 sort of st studies mathematical notions of randomness, and so you know there are many areas of math. There's number theory, there's algebra, there's you know harmonic analysis. There's a lot of areas of math, um, and you don't really need to know most of them to pursue any particular one. Right? It depends on which field. Some have more interconnections than others, but even within a field, you then have to specialize into a, a subtopic. Uh, so in probability theory, for example, you have to know quite a lot of of general theory about probability, uh, but then those were established like 30, 40 years ago. So when you get a stuff that's happening today, you go into uh, a specialization within probability theory. Uh, so what I do is this area called stochastic growth models. And what are those? Right. So, so 
as the as the name says, it, it's 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 a model of growth of uh, of growth, which which has some notion of randomness in it, uh, stochastic. Uh, so, for example, there there are many real world examples which are not actually what we study. Uh, we study models of that in a very abstract sense, but the, but the real world examples are, you know, so you can imagine, you know, for for a biological example, you could imagine you have a bacterial cell initially. And I might get this completely wrong, so please forgive me if I do. Uh, but yeah, we have vector cells to begin with. And then, you know, it, it grows, uh, it divides and it grows, uh, the colony grows outwards. And so, you know, they're kind of the, the, the thing we're interested in is the way it grows. So for example, one question might be, as the colony grows outwards, it's roughly circular uh, or it's roughly kind of, yeah, basically circular. Uh, and so you have, on one level, you, you, you have a rate of growth outwards, how, how fast the radius grows of the circle. Um, and then it's not actually a circle. It has it has kind of these fluctuations uh, at the boundary um, away from this kind of nice smooth shape. Uh, and you get these kind of rough fluctuations. And so one other uh, aspect of interest is to understand the nature of those fluctuations. How big are the fluctuations? Do they have some kind of distribution and things like this? So basically you, you, we're, we're interested in the growth of an interface uh, between two things, in this case, uh, back to the colony and, and the outside. Uh, but it also shows in other settings, for example, a more physics-y set, physics example would be you have some kind of crystal um, and, you, and you just maybe, maybe initially it's kind of a flat surface. Uh, and then from this flat surface, the crystal kind of grows upwards into, into some medium. And then you have a boundary between the crystal and the medium, um, and then, which, is, which is also growing with time. Um, and so just like the bacterial cells, uh, bacterial colonies, uh, radius is increasing, here, the height is increasing of this crystal interface. Uh, and just as you have fluctuations at the boundary of the bacterial colony, here you have fluctuations of the, of the interface around this kind of straight line um, that it's kind of averaging to be. So you're talking about like two like completely different things, right? right. Like, but you're saying that the models you're looking at are good for both of these. Yeah, so somehow there's a belief that many, many types of growth uh, have similar behaviors uh, in the sense of how fast they grow outwards and, and the fluctuations around a, a average shape. And so even though, as you said, it's a very, very different physical phenomenon, still the idea is that the same mathematical models kind of capture important aspects of both. And if, if the models themselves are, are quite abstract. You, you, if, you, if, I, if I tell you the model, you would not say, oh, this is definitely, you know, describing a vector colony or something. But yes, yeah. Right. But you're more interested in the theoretical model than right. with the real world applications of it. Right. So like so this, 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 so this belief that the same kind of model describe a wide variety of, of phenomena is also kind of, there's, there's, a, there's a mathematical aspect of it where many, many different models, uh, which are kind of different in the details, but somehow many different models still give you the same behavior in some sense. So, you know, you might actually have different, if you look at the actual precise details, you might have a different model for the, the, the car crystal growth situation and the, um, the bacterial colony growth situation. Uh, but the idea is that nevertheless, even though you have two different models, they, they evince the same behavior in a macroscopic sense. So the simpler example, which is maybe people are more familiar with, would be, um, it's more a classical area probability. Uh, this is the central limit theorem which says that if you have many, many kind of random factors which are, in, which are involved in uh, some, you know, some statistic or some phenomena, then that phenomena will, will, will display a bell curve uh, in a very kind of vague sense. 
so for example, you know, you look at you, you look at heights in population, you separate by gender, you look at heights in population, uh, and then you see this kind of distribution of, of, of heights, which is which is a bell curve, because there are some other lot of random inputs in the genes or something which which gives you this independent uh, structure. And the important thing is that no matter what is the nature of the of the input, the random input, you get the same thing at the end, right? You get the same bell curve. So this is what's called universality in, right. in this in this area. And so the idea is that similarly in, in random growth models, many, many different models exhibit the same kind of universal features, not the bell curve, but some other uh, structures, but nevertheless, the same for everything. Right. That makes sense. I got you. What are you trying to do, though, actually with the model? I guess, like, what what is pushing the boundaries in knowing the theory of this model um, mean? Maybe, or like, definitely in the context of your own research, and then I guess generally, kind of, what, right. what are mathematicians pushing in these uh, theoretical models, generally? Yeah, in this area, the ultimate goal is actually to prove some form of universality, some form of saying that no matter what model you have, you get the same kind of behavior across all the models. And that's the ultimate goal. We're very far from that being done. So if I, if I can go back to the central limit theorem example, uh, so we, now we know that so many, no matter how you put in the randomness, you get the same bell curve uh, out. But in the beginning, uh, I think maybe in the 1700s, this was known for exactly one situation. Uh, and this is the situation of, of tossing coins. Uh, so if you toss, uh, yeah, let's say coins like a hundred, maybe a million times, some absurdly large number, and you look at the number of heads, and you do this many times, uh, you'll see the number of heads is you know, roughly half, but it's not always going to be half. So there'll be fluctuations around around that half. And you see how many times is it is it is it two more than half? How many times is it ten more than half? And you kind of you plot this and you get the bell. And so. The very first situation where we knew the bell curve arises was in this situation. And the reason was you could write down a formula for the number, for the probability of getting any number of heads you wanted. Uh, so you can say, okay, probability of getting 100 heads out of 300 tosses uh, is exactly this number. And so you could, you, get, you could get this exact formulas and then you could, you could analyze those formulas to say, okay, now that's why you see this bell curve coming out. But these formulas don't hold for other situations where you have different forms of randomness that aren't so simple like a coin toss. And it took a long time to overcome that difficulty and develop a theory which could handle all kinds of randomness. And so now in, in, within stochastic growth models, we're kind of in a similar situation where you have a few nice models where you can write down formulas for things exactly. You can analyze them, you can get your limiting behavior, which is, which is universal, but you can't expand beyond those models because the formulas don't hold uh, beyond those models. And so part of my research has been to kind of step towards uh, universality tried to move away from models which are, you know, what they call exactly solvable because they're, you can exactly write down formulas for their solutions and try to move away from exactly solvable models towards slightly more robust uh, approach to proving universality. That's kind of that's the short description of what I'm trying to do. Okay. I guess, like, what would that mean if you couldn't write down a formula? Like, what, what would you be doing then? It's hard to say what you'd actually be analyzing without the formula. So this is part of the problem. You know, the, you, have to, you have to invent something which captures important aspects of the model without requiring you to be able to write down something explicitly about it. So in the case of the, um, the central limit theorem, the bell curves, uh, this, the thing that was invented was the Fourier transform. So the Fourier transform, you can write down for a random variable what it is, but maybe you, you can't actually calculate it. But the way to prove central limit theorem is to use this object, which you, which you kind of came out of nowhere. Nothing. If you look at the you know the point dust, you don't really see any Fourier transforms uh, involved. Uh, but you can still introduce Fourier transforms, and you can analyze that thing 
to get the bell curve. And so there's no kind of analogous object uh, which we can say, oh, if we understand this thing very, very well, then we, we, we can prove universality in stochastic growth models. So it's a good question. I mean, I, I don't have a, a succinct answer except that that's part of the problem to know right. to, what to look at. For sure. I see. So, but that's kind of um, something like the Fourier transform is what you're moving towards with the goal to... Get in, a, in, a, in a very analogous sense, right? Yeah. You, you don't actually, but yeah, something which, which could play the role. I mean, I don't know if there is such a, such, a, such, a, such a single object because somehow this situation is a much more complicated situation than um, the bell curve, but somehow something analogous to, uh, in, in terms of its role, the Fourier transform would be something you could try to get towards. I'm hedging my, what I'm saying simply because there are way more things happening here. So it's hard to, it's hard to imagine if you could capture all of it with one object, uh, but maybe several things like, like the Fourier transform. Right, for sure. You're almost done with your dissertation. Where have you pushed these boundaries? Like what, what have you found on these problems? So because we only have a few models where, where we can say anything, which are the exactly solvable, solvable models, right now the general strategy has been to work with these models but to write down assumptions, which are kind of halfway abstracted away from those models. Uh, so you write down some assumptions which you know to be true in those models and no other models, but which you still hope to be true in other models, even if they're different, even if the models themselves are different. And so the idea has been to write down some assumptions which you know to be true in these models and then derive consequences of those assumptions using methods which don't require formulas. Okay. Uh, so in a way to kind of move past, take limited, Exactly, call solvable input, and then from then on, use only more robust techniques to drive to, to learn new new results. Would you be able to walk it like tell us an assumption, or would it be like too like, theoretical to make? I can kind of tell you the assumption. So, so in the central limit theorem, you know, if you take if you, if if you toss the coin n times, n can be like any number, then it's known that the the so you're going to be around n by two. That's your number of heads typically, but you're gonna have fluctuations around that. And we know that the size of the fluctuations is, a, is, a, is, a, is around the square root of n. Um, so this is a very important aspect of the central limit theorem that your fluctuations around the mean are of order the square root of the number of trials. In stochastic growth models, it's very different. You don't see uh, a square root order of fluctuations. You see if you have n, uh, if the size of your system is n, not just n in the n coin tosses, uh, then you would see fluctuations of order n to the one third. This is just a, there are reasons for why you see one third, but basically you see you see the the, the it's n to the one third instead of n to the half. So it's a smaller uh, amount of fluctuations, and this is known only for like a few models. The fact that it's n to the one third. This is a very basic fact, but you know it only for these kind of very few models. So one assumption is exactly that the fluctuations are of order n to the one third. Yeah, so okay, so you're saying like because um, you have these models, there are some models that we have for stochastic growth that we already know, and so mm -hmm. since we have them, we can analyze them and we can say these fluctuations are n to the one third. But mm -hmm. you want to be able to like say essentially the goal is to say like this is just a fact for all, even yeah. if you don't have the models. What what is the the thing that you do to get from that assumption to like the research that's pushing it forward? Okay, so maybe, now maybe I should tell you a model, uh, hopefully without getting into too much technical stuff. But basically, it's pretty simple actually. So suppose you have a grid, okay, in two D, and the grid size is n. Okay, so you you have, you have n squared number of points in the grid, 
at, at each corner in, in your grid, you have one vertex. Okay, just like a, you can imagine some dot. You associate to each vertex a random number. Okay, and that's going to be like a reward if you go through that vertex. Uh, so you can you, you can really imagine it like in like a you know a city 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 street grid. And you're going to start at the bottom left corner of your square. And you're going to go to the top right corner by going at each. You can go to the right and you can go up at each intersection. As you as you go from you you can't go back. You can't go you can't go down. You can't go left. You can only go up and right. These are, these are the allowed ways of movement within this grid. And depending on which path you take, you're going to pass through these, these, these intersections, which each have a random number associated with them, so the reward of that intersection, and you collect the rewards as you pass from here to here. So then you have a total reward based on how you went through the, through the grid, which is the sum of each reward that you actually went through. And now we're going to, we're going to look at the best way to get from bottom to top, the, the one which has the maximum reward. And this is the model. We want to know we want to know what is the the best reward uh, from from bottom to top, and we want to know uh, what is the the shape of the path which achieves this maximum best reward. And notice because the because the rewards are random, the total reward the total maximum reward is also random, and also the the best path is random. And so here you can see the end of the one third fluctuations. What it means in this context is that the maximum reward, which is random, is going to fluctuate around some mean value by n to the one thing. Because? Uh, it's not clear why. Yeah, so this is, this is, this is, this is, this is what's expected. I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it's not all clear why. <laughs> so, and in fact, so, so you, know, you can have different types of randomness at these intersection reward values. Uh, and it's known for exactly two types of randomness that it should be n to the one third fluctuation. So it's known for two cases of the randomness at the intersection values. That the that is a, it's a order n to the one third, but you expect with basically any kind of randomness, not just these two, you have the same order of fluctuations. Um, okay. And so we assume we have that order of fluctuations, and we don't assume anything about the the nature of the randomness at the vertices. And now you can you can now hope to move beyond though the exactly solvable, solvable models by looking at the paths. The paths you see they care less about in some sense very vaguely they care less about the, the details of the randomness. And because they are the best paths, they have certain properties, uh, which you can then try to analyze uh, using those properties. And the idea is that anything you derive with your assumptions and, the, and uh, understanding the paths will apply to any other model where you can verify the assumptions. And so this is kind of trying to get, get past formulas because the paths are kind of geometric objects, which, which they're, they're not formulas, but they should be uh, more their behavior should be more generally uh, consistent for different types of randomness. So you are kind of generating a bunch of possibilities based on this model that you know, and then you can, I guess, have this kind of like a big matrix or something, and then you can look at it with other models and kind of vary. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, the other models would just mean different distributions of randomness at the at the intersections. Right. And so you would just kind of keep verifying, like if, if at any point this matrix falls apart, then you would say, well, this assumption or this, I guess the, whatever you were trying to prove with that particular thing would say, right. that's not pushing us towards universality. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah. somehow, you know, the very difficult job, which is completely out of, out of, you know, it's beyond our reach right now is to verify that the assumptions that I mentioned actually hold for other types of randomness. So we're sidestepping that very difficult issue and saying, okay, let's suppose we knew that. 
then let's use uh, let's, let's 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 make arguments about the the maximizing paths, which are more easy to understand, and and we'll see what we can get from these maximizing paths. You need to have like a pretty high throughput computer, basically, to do a lot of the research you need to do. Um, so we don't we don't actually do simulations because I don't know why actually. I mean, so it, it can be useful. To, so I sometimes do simulations, but my computer is not at all a straight fast computer. So yeah, it just it just takes a long time. Uh, but typically, typically, math research it does not involve simulations. So it really is just a question of paper, pen. So you're sitting there like solving by hand a lot of the time, like yeah, it's, like, right. it's, it's, it's all it's basically all by hand. Is yeah, I think like research time, like when you do research, you're just like sitting at a desk, like writing out equations, yeah. and equations. Not necessarily equations, but you know, so you want to prove something, and so you'll have you know kind of vague ideas of how you might try to prove it, and so you'll 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 try to you'll draw some pictures to see what you're saying makes heuristic sense, or maybe you'll actually try to write down aspects of the proof. And then it might be an equation. It might be might be just kind of some written like a verbal argument. Uh, you, you get you get stuck somewhere, and then you you think about how you're going to get past that point. So maybe you'll just sit there and look at the ceiling, or maybe you'll go for a walk. Going for walks is quite helpful. Yeah. Um, the picture people have of mathematicians is not that inaccurate. It's not inaccurate. Yeah, it, it really is a lot of just sitting and thinking about stuff, or going for a walk and thinking about stuff, or reading papers to see what other people other people have tried right um, but it really is a very like low low electricity job <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and i should say that you know you, this is something that all mathematicians will, will tell you you'll be, you'll be sitting at your desk and you'll think you'll, you'll have an idea pretty very often um and what you do at that point is you go for a walk because you know you've got to you've got to appreciate you want you want to enjoy the feeling of having an idea before you try to write it down and see that it's wrong <laughs> um, so you really have to, you know, it, it, usually your idea is wrong, almost right. always is wrong. And so you've got to really take advantage of the time when you do to have an idea before you lose it completely again. Right. So there are there conferences, like academic math conferences? Yeah. Yes. What, what is a, what's a math talk like? Like what does somebody do in a math talk? A math talk. So I have heard from my friends and other other disciplines that math talks kind of break all the rules that they've heard of about how to give a talk. <laughs> um, there are basically no pictures for the most part. There might be a few depending on the, depending on the topic, but often there are no pictures. Um, and it's usually just like a bunch of bullet points of text explaining the model, explaining the argument, uh, maybe some equations to explain to write that right out what the actual proof is. But typically, yeah. So it's, it's one person, a slideshow. And the first two slides within my area is just you set up the model, uh, then you set up the question, maybe explain what people have done in, in previous work, and then you try to give an idea of the proof. But it's very different from friend, the talks of my friends that I've gone to in other disciplines, uh, and it's way more, way more just like sentences on the, on the slides. Well, so now you're all, you're moving on after grad school. You're going to be done with grad school. So, like, what a are you going to go into an academic career? Or? Yes. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to start starting a postdoc um, after this. So, uh, so actually, so Berkeley has this place called MSRI, uh, the Mathematical Sciences uh, Research, Research Institute, which is right next to LBNL on the hills. And so uh, MSRI has a, has a program in math every semester uh, in, a, in a different area of math. And what happens is researchers from, from around the world who work in that area come to MSRI 
and think about stuff together. And so next semester, the program in MSRI is in my particular area of, of math. And so I'm going to be a postdoc there for six months because everybody's going to be there who works in my area. Um, and then after that, I'll, I'll be at Columbia. It's like just a lot of time. Everybody's like sharing whiteboards, talking yeah. about where they're ah. Yeah. <laughs> Is that like kind of like just math? Like that's, that's what you envision for your career. I mean, there'll be times when it's like you writing on a desk on paper right. yes. times writing on the whiteboard, but that's basically like, <laughs> yes, that's about the, that's about the span of it. Nice. That's Unless you expand beyond, you know, pure math, but within, within like pure math, that's definitely the majority of it. I mean, yeah, that's, that's if you love math, like that sounds like. The thing yeah, exactly. If you're really okay with, so before the pandemic started, I would just be sitting in my office the entire day. So uh, this is not that typical, but my two office mates did not come to my office very often. So often I was just sitting there for the entire day working on something. And so when the pandemic started, it was the same thing, except I do it at, at home now. You have to like math to be able to do it, I guess. Yeah, you talk about people needing to love math. Do, how often in your life do you encounter people who just like don't like math? And then I guess I'm interested because I always hear people talk about, you know, not being able to do math, which is, <laughs> I definitely get people not liking math, but the idea that people can't do math always seems so odd to me because it's like, I mean, you know, you can right. write down stuff on a paper like what do you, what are your thoughts about um that uh mindset yeah yeah there are definitely people who think they you know they don't like math or they, or they can't do math and so on i personally often think that it's it's it's, it's definitely to do with the fact that the math we're taught as as kids as students is not that interesting at least that's my view mainly because as i was kind of saying before it's it's rather rote, you know, um, you have to figure out the area of triangles or whatever, um, or you have to compute some integral. You don't, really, you, you don't really see that there's an idea involved in these computations. You know, so there's this, I think this is a little, there's, there's this essay written by, by, by a mathematician, which I think is controversial among mathematicians about whether they agree with it completely or not, uh, but it's called uh, Mathematician's Lament, where he just laments that Math is taught not like art, basically. So in art, you know, people do, you know, when the kids, they, they're kind of allowed to just kind of free paint with their fingers and whatever. Um, it's very fun. There's no real rules to it. Um, and maybe later they, they, they're, they're taught some skills, you know, how to, how to paint or, you know, exercise you have to do about like drawing circles and so on about, about things. But throughout the thing, you are aware that there are these great works of art around, um, which which you can look at and you can appreciate if you think, okay, this is what I want to do. This is a step towards that. In math, you know, there are also these great works of art. That, you know, there, there are these kind of theorems, you know, there's complicated theorems, but kids don't know that. Uh, kids are just told, okay, just multiply, learn these multiplication tables, or, you know, do these calculations for, for the area of a, a triangle, or like which number is bigger, or things like this. And there's no real motivation. Like, why would you, why would you care about this in the first place? Nobody knows. I think one reason people don't like math is because this is the impression they have of it, that there's no real ideas involved. There's no larger story about what's, or why people came to these questions, why they want to answer them, what's interesting about them. Yeah, that's so, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because like, when you talk about art, um, I get that, you know, kids can, it's kind of like a space for exploring. And in math, I, you know, that there should be space for exploring, I guess, but, also math is, you know, I'm kind of also thinking about it in terms of like 
learning English or learning your native language in school, you know, you have to like learn these building blocks, right. like system. And so math has that need for that system. And I don't know. Yeah. It's funny. Cause in, you know, learning the times tables, like, I don't know, is that something that's necessary, but I guess. Right. I that's the issue. You do need these skills later, you know, to do yeah. math later, but you know, for, in, in, in the English example, you know, spelling is annoying. Grammar things are annoying. But you read books and you and you think, oh well, this is this is what I've gotten out of that stuff that I can appreciate, you know, stories in books, um, which again is not really available uh, if, if you're doing math basically until undergrad, I'd say. Uh, maybe maybe if you're in some advanced courses in high school or something, but for the most part, until then, it's really kind of mysterious why this is interesting. Right. I got you. So it's like if you were learning English, but they just gave you like words and they never actually gave you a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that does make it sound bad. <laughs> uh, so my personal view is that if it's taught differently, maybe, you know, there are certain skills, that, as you pointed out, about uh, multiplication, which you do have to do. Uh, and maybe, you know, it's hard to say whether everybody can would actually enjoy learning that stuff, even if there's stuff later. But certainly I think you build be better appreciate why this is interesting if it was taught differently. Well, that's hard to teach. It's, my, it's, it's not to say it's an easy thing to do. So unfortunately, uh, we've run out of time for the interview. Um, it has been so much fun talking. Uh, today, we've been speaking with Milan Hegde from the Department of Mathematics about um, his research on stochastic growth models. Thanks so much for being on the show, Milan. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.